Right. So, we are continuing a sermon series through the book of Colossians, and I'm, uh, I'm glad to be back. By the way, if you're not familiar with me, my name is Tony. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Tabor. We are glad that you are here today, and we want to say a special welcome to everybody joining us on Facebook Live this morning. We know that you'll probably watch online several times before you'd ever consider coming. We're okay with that. If you've got any questions, just send us a message. We'll be happy to work through that with you. All right, so with all that being said, I want to start with a concept this morning. I think you might be able to relate to this. Here's our concept. When you do things out of order, when you do things out of order, it creates problems. When you do things out of order, it creates problems. Let me, uh, let me give you an example. Um, if you know me, you know I've got two little ones. I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Now, Atticus is my three-year-old. He can pretty well get himself dressed now, uh, but for the majority of his life, that's something that he's not been able to do. And of course, my daughter Adeline still needs me. And one of the things that I do on a regular basis is get things out of order. So, I mean, just very, very frequently, I dress my children incorrectly. Let me give you an example. Um, you, you get, the, you get the, the shirt on, and then you move down to the socks, because especially with little girls' clothes, you've got to do the socks before you do the pants, because if you try to do the pants first, and then the socks, then you pull the pants down over the socks, and the socks come off, and that just doesn't work. But So I get, I get the socks on, and then you pull the pants on, and then you're about ready to let them go, and then you realize that there's a snap at the bottom of the shirt, and it... It, it meets, and so you have to pull the pants back down, and you get the snaps button. And by the time you have the snaps buttoned back up, then the pants have been kicked off, and then this whole process is starting over again. When you do things out of order, it creates problems. Here's a better example when it comes to dressing your child. This is a mistake I also make very frequently. I dress my daughter without getting approval from Leah first. Has anybody else ever made that mistake? I do this on a weekly basis. I will get Adeline ready. Everything will go smoothly. And we'll be ready to walk out the door. Leah will look at Adeline and she'll say, those are pajamas. What do they make the pajamas so darn cute for? And with Atticus, I can tell. It's got a character on it. There's, they're, they're snug. They're fine. With, with Adeline, they're just cute. They're adorable. There's little outfits. Why is there a little trench coat pajama outfit? When you do things out of order... It creates problems. Here's the last example. If I were to say foil, what would be the first thing that would pop into your mind? Aluminum foil. we got a lot of bakers in the room. What if I said it had something to do with mathematics? Foil? First, outside, inside, last. This is the process for multiplying binomials, and I guarantee you there's only one reason in the world that I know what this is. It's because I missed a question because I got it out of order on a math test. And I'm fine with it. I don't, I don't have any bitterness at all except for Chris Evans got a better score than me on that test because of that one question. And I don't have any bitterness except, except we had this teacher and, and she, this is what she would do. Whenever we had a math test, the next class after, she would put one, two, three, four, five in the upper right-hand corner of the chalkboard, and what she would do is, starting at number five, she would write the top five scores, last name and then first initial for the people who got that test, and I just get so sick of seeing Evans K, 
always number one. Mendezabel T, always number 13. No, I'm just kidding. Always number two. And I just get so sick of it. And so this test, it was about multiplying binomials. I studied like crazy. And I nailed it. I did so good on this test. I felt great. I was like, I got a perfect score. And so she starts writing, okay, I'm not five. We're in good shape. Not four. Awesome. Not three. Great. Number two, Mendez, you've got to be kidding me. I'm two again? Chris Evans. I'm not bitter about this, by the way. This is, I'm totally fine with this, but when you get things out of, the point I'm making is when you get things out of order, it creates problems. And I bring this up because we have the tendency to do this in Christianity. We want to do things out of order. And one of the places that this shows up the most frequently is in our desire. We want to start with behavior change. And when we start with behavior change, we're creating problems. We have to understand what Jesus has done for us. We have to understand our need for Jesus. We have to appreciate the work that Jesus has done for us to secure our salvation before we can ever think about behavior change. And so many Christians want to start with changed behaviors, and it creates big problems. It creates big problems. Problems. When we do things out of order, it creates problems. Here's what I mean. Two things, two problems that it creates. It, first, if, if we go straight to changing behavior and not forgiveness of sins through Jesus, we may succeed in changing this behavior, whatever it is that you want to change, but we will have no success in achieving forgiveness. So I want to give you an example. Many of you know that uh, earlier in my life, I had uh, a problem with drinking. And that problem with drinking resulted in some sin in my life. In many cases, some pretty serious sin. And so that was something about me that needed to change. And, and that, that part of my life changed. And it was a fantastic thing. I, I thought clearer. I felt better. I had hope about life. I saw a path moving forward. I was more optimistic. I was healthier. And it was a good, positive change to make in my life. But, but here's what quitting drinking didn't do for me. It didn't, it didn't make up for any of the sins that I had committed because of my drinking. When I quit drinking, it didn't magically make all of the things that I have done and all of the people that I had hurt, it didn't magically make it better. There was still real pain and real hurt that really had to be addressed. So changing a behavior is a positive thing, but it's not the only thing. It didn't atone for the sins I'd committed. A lot of people go to church and they say, I just want to stop doing this thing. I just want to stop doing that thing. That's great. I want that for you too. I really do, but what I want more than anything else is for you to be forgiven of your sins and have the gift of Holy Spirit. And that, that's only possible when you understand what Jesus has done for you. When you understand the reality of your sin and your need for a Savior. So that's where we start. That's where we start. That's where Paul starts. That's why the book of Colossians is broken down into two parts. The first part is all, this is what Jesus has done. 
This is the gospel. This is what Jesus has done to secure your forgiveness. And the second part is, this is what behavior change looks like. This is how the gospel should affect your life. So chapters 1 and 2 are all gospel. Chapters 3 and 4 are all about, uh, the, the big word that we use for it is sanctification. This is, this is how the gospel changes my life. So 1 and 2, all gospel. Chapters 3 and 4, all sanctification. And they meet right here in the middle in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It's what we're going to be studying today. Okay, uh, And so that's why Paul organizes. He starts with Jesus for a very important reason. The first is because simply quitting a behavior doesn't atone for our sins. Here's the second reason. We come to church and we say, okay, I'm going to stop doing all these things. I'm going to stop doing all of these things that I should stop doing. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to quit cussing. I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to stop watching MSNBC and everything's going to be awesome. And I'm going to be a really good Christian. And then what happens? You slip up. And one of these goals that you've set for yourself, you slip up and you're, you're hurt and you're confused and you're embarrassed and you keep it to yourself and you vow that you'll never ever do anything like that again and everything's going great until you slip up and you do it again and you're hurt and you're embarrassed and you're confused and you're a little bit angry and you vow that you're never going to do it again and everything's going great until you slip up again and you're hurt and you're confused and you're angry and you start to wonder, does this Christianity thing just not work for me? And all of a sudden you've given up on a faith that you've never really started in the first place because you were still relying on yourself and you never learned to rely on Jesus and you've never learned what He has done for you. Starting with behavior change is trying to do the impossible without the God who can do the impossible. We start with Christ. We start by knowing the visible image of the invisible God. We start by knowing what He has done for each of us. We start by knowing that our sin has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. That when we stand before God, we have only one thing to say. Jesus is my Lord and my God. We start there. We start there. When we do things out of order, it creates problems. It creates problems. So I'm gonna, I want to just summarize as we get ready to enter Colossians chapter 3 and 4, which are going to address behavior change, changes in the life of Christians, I want, to, I want to set the stage with this statement. All right, you ready? You don't do the behaviors that Paul is about to teach in order to know Christ. You don't do, things, you don't do these things in order to know Christ. You do them because you know Christ. These things that Paul's about to discuss over the course of the next two chapters, these are not your pathway to a relationship with God. These things happen as a result of your relationship with God. Okay, so the text we're going to look at today is a transition between justification, that's that fancy word for how the Bible talks about salvation, into sanctification, which is that fancy word for behavior change, and this is where Paul transitions. So open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1, and we'll just read the first four verses today. Here's what Paul says. 
Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So as we start, I want to note the way that, that Paul transitions in this passage between talking about justification to talking about sanctification. So in one sentence, he'll be talking about justification. He'll be talking about the work of Jesus. In the very next sentence, he'll be talking about sanctification, about behavior change. And so you're going to feel like you've got a little bit of whiplash okay, as we, as we transition from one concept to the next, even in sentences. Okay, But that's, again... Paul transitioning this book of Colossians in its totality. So uh, we'll we'll start with uh, we'll, we'll start with verse one. Here's what Paul says: Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, the word "since," uh, the word "since," it, it's an indication that what we are about to rele- what we're about to read references back to something that Paul has already said. It's a continuation of an argument. And so uh, we continue from Colossians 2 in verse 12 where Paul says this, you were buried with Christ when you were baptized and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ For he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. So what's our big concept? When you do things out of order, it creates what? Problems. When you do things out of order, it creates problems. Paul is saying, remember, we start with Jesus. We start with an acknowledgement that we are sinners who need a Savior. Then we trust the mighty power of God who raised Jesus from the dead and we're baptized. And as we're baptized, we are forgiven of our sins because of the work that Jesus has already accomplished. So that problem that you came to church hoping to work on, your, your anger, your drinking, your lust, your, your discontentment, whatever it is, understand that when you were baptized, it's for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's from Acts chapter 2, by the way. And here's what God is saying when we think about forgiveness of sins and gift of the Holy Spirit. This is God's way of saying, I forgive you. Now let's work on this together. I forgive you. Now let's work on this together. You're drinking, let's work on this together. Your lust, let's work on it together. Your discontentment, let's work on this together. And that's the gospel. Forgiveness of your sins and the power of God working within you to begin to see that change come about. <clears throat> Since you've been raised, that's the gospel. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Now here's the shift. This is the gospel. Now what do you do with it? You've been forgiven of your sins. How does that change your life? Set your sights on the reality of heaven. Kind of reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 6. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and He'll give you everything you need. Maybe you've heard it this way. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Why do we set our sights on the realities of heaven? Because that's where Christ sits. 
in the place of honor at God's right hand. Because that's where Christ sits, in the place of honor at God's right hand. Now that's subtle. And maybe you're going, Tony, i got to be honest with you, Jesus sitting down is not the most compelling thing to me. Jesus is sitting down. That's not compelling. I mean, I have coworkers that sit down all day and they drive me nuts. Why does it matter that Jesus is sitting down? It's a transition statement. It's back to this idea of justification and it's important. Let me explain. Uh, the word sit. Right? You think about your coworkers sitting and you have a connotation of laziness. Let me tell you why sit is an important word here. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that Jesus is a high priest. He's our high priest. Now, there were, there were high priests in the Old Testament, too. They were important people. Uh, but what makes diff- Jesus different from these Old Testament high priests? Well, let's look at it. In the Old Testament, the high priest, they would stand. They would stand. And they would be ministering every day to the people. And they would be offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. And then once a year on the Day of Atonement, they would offer a big sacrifice. And they would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. And only this high priest was allowed to enter this space. And only once a year on this specific day. And he would offer a very specific sacrifice. But as he's in the Holy of Holies offering this sacrifice for the people, there's nowhere for him to sit down because the work isn't finished. The high priest knows that when he leaves after offering this place, there's going to be another sacrifice to come the next year. And the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that, there is going to be another sacrifice to offer. He's not ready to sit down. He'd present that offering next day he would go back and he would stand before the people and he would minister on their behalf and he would offer sacrifices and the next year he'd offer that day of atonement sacrifice it went on this way year after year generation after generation because the work was never done until jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of god he sat down that's where jesus is seated the work is finished and when you are raised to new life with christ you are seated with him the work of your salvation is finished no work or merit nothing you can do will make you more saved no good deed or even religious title will make you more saved than you already are because jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of god your redemption is complete. That is the reality of your salvation. And what we do with that is very simple. We think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. We think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Isn't there a song that says something like that? The things of earth will grow strangely dim. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Now, our tendency to say, we have a tendency, and we say something like, well, as long as I don't get caught up in sin, we don't have a problem here. As long as I don't get into something that's really bad, we're going to be just fine here. The problem that most of us run into is we take something that's really morally neutral, and we get so wrapped up in it that it becomes sinful. We allow it to become sinful. I'm going to let you guys off the hook here this morning. It's not sinful to be a Purdue fan. 
It's not sinful, Rose, can you see me? It's not sinful to be an IU fan. It's not even sinful to be a Kentucky fan. (laughs) But we can start to get into trouble when we devote all of our energies to knowing everything about everybody on our team. So we have a conversation during Sunday school and you're going, I know the starters for my team. I know their height, weight, birth weight, mother's maiden name. I know their field goal percentage of the last 34 seconds of the first half when the score is closer than four points. But can somebody tell me where Colossians is? You just throw yourself into it and there's this passion. And that's not a bad thing. It really isn't. It's not a bad thing at all. We just have to make sure that our passion for the temporary doesn't exceed our passion for the eternal. You see that right there? Our passion for the temporary cannot exceed our passion for the eternal. That's what Paul's reminding us. Now, I'm not huge into college sports. I'm not hugely invested in any one particular team. I like the Bears. I like the Chicago Bears. God has no use for the Bears in eternity. Actually, after last week, I'm pretty convinced that God has no use for the Bears now. Anyway... Paul's not telling you to quit your hobby. (laughs) I have hobbies. My hobbies are important to me. I like lifting weights, right? I like playing with Legos with my kids. I like watching baseball. I like grilling meat, right? And and really, those things are morally neutral. They're They're not good and godly and honoring things, but they're not bad things. They're morally neutral. And what Paul is saying is make sure your passion for the temporary doesn't exceed your passion for the eternal. Think about the things of heaven. Think about the things of heaven. For you died to this life. And your real life is hidden with Christ in God. We made another switch. Now we're back to justification. That idea of think about the things of heaven was a sanctification concept. Now we're back to justification. You died to this life. And your real life is hidden with Christ in God. We're back to justification, specifically this idea of baptism. Now you're wondering, why does Paul keep flip-flopping? Remember, it's a transition passage. First two chapters, all justification. Last two chapters, all sanctification. And this passage is how these two interact with each other. What Paul's doing here is introducing the idea of sanctification, but he keeps reminding us that if we do things in the wrong order, it creates problems. So our conversation about sanctification, our conversation about behavior change starts with baptism because, again, baptism was where we have forgiveness of sins and the gift of Holy Spirit. That's sanctification. So I read a story recently. It's going to illustrate this. I hope it brings it into a clearer focus for you. Okay, We start using these polysyllabic words. What did the preacher talk about? I don't know. He just said justification and sanctification a whole bunch of times. I'm feeling pretty good that I can say those words now. So I I hope this brings it all into a clearer focus for you. Okay? Uh, This story. In 1922, the University of Toronto, scientists, they went to a hospital ward at the University of Toronto Hospital, and there was a a ward of children, and they were all in a, a coma for the same reason. The whole hospital ward of children who were in a coma for a very specific reason, they were all suffering from diabetic ketoacidosis. It's a room full of parents, and they were waiting for their children to die. There was nothing that could be done. 
except for the scientists went from bed to bed and they injected each child with a new synthetic purified extract called insulin. Insulin. And as they began to inject the last child in the ward, the first few children had started to stir from their coma. And one by one, all of the children in that ward came out of their diabetic comas and a room full of death and gloom was instantly transformed into a place of joy and hope. And that is what our baptism is like. It's a room full of death. It's a heart full of death and despair and sin that is instantly transformed into joy and life as we inject the finished work of Christ into our being. That's what our baptism's like. So that's the first part. It's also the reason that Paul keeps going back to baptism and explaining why order is important, why keeping things in order is important, because here's what would be ridiculous. Imagine for a moment that instead of going into this hospital ward and the doctors and the scientists uh, injecting these children with insulin, imagine if instead they sat down next to the bed of each child and they said, okay, now listen, there are some things you need to know. You're going to need to really change. Are you listening? You're really going to need to change your lifestyle. You have a disease called diabetes, and you're going to need to make some changes so that way this doesn't happen to you again. So you're going to have to watch your sugar intake. That means no more candy, no more sodas. Of course, sugar comes in more things than just, uh, than just candy, so you're going to have to watch your bread and your fruit intake as well. Are you listening, kid? It would be kind of ridiculous, wouldn't it? Because you got to be alive before you can start to make changes. And what Paul is saying to us is Christians, you have to be alive before you can start to make changes. Baptism is where that life comes into us. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. There are two words used for life in the New Testament. Two words. The first is bios. Think biology, biological. This is denoting things that are living as opposed to things that are not living, whatever you call that. A rock, I guess. Anyway, that's, that's, somebody tell me after church with the, with the you know, biologically alive, what's the opposite of that? Never mind. Somebody tell me that after church. Anyway, that's the first word for life. The second one is a way. That's the idea of spiritual life. None of you are listening anymore. You're all Googling what that is. So the, the second word for life is zoe. Uh, that's spiritual life. That's our spiritual life. And when we're baptized, our life is no longer defined by what we do here and what we wear here and what title people give us here and how much money we have here and what we drive here. Our life is no longer defined by our bios. When we're baptized, our real life, our zoe, is hidden with Christ in God. And can I just tell you that's good news? And for all of us who are poor in the room, you're going, amen, preach it, brother. I'm no longer defined by my bank account. This is great. But that's good news for everybody. Because all of the things that we might possess here on earth are things that moth and rust might destroy. A man might break in and steal. Even our lives, which really, when we get right down to it, are pretty important to us. Our lives are fragile. But Paul is telling us that our real lives are hidden with Christ in God. And you tell me what can tear that away from him. I think that's why John Chrysostom was so confident at the time of his death. 
And you might not be familiar with John Chrysostom, but Dan, your story reminded me of this. John Chrysostom was a fourth century church leader. He's incredibly bold, incredibly outspoken in his faith, so much so that he became a source of ire and hatred for the Empress Eudoxia. And eventually, she had Chrysostom arrested, and and she brought him into her court, and she threatened him with his life. She said, unless you recant your faith and renounce Christ, you will be killed. Here's how the conversation went. She said all of that, and then she said, I will kill you. Here's what he said, no, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. The Empress Eudoxia had the ability to take Christensen's biological life, but he knew that his spiritual life was far beyond her reach. It had been hidden with Christ and God, and she was powerless to affect it. The same is true for all of you who have been raised to new life with Christ. I want to close with verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. When you see this word revealed in your text. That's Paul talking about the second coming. Uh, and when Jesus returns, there are going to be there are going to be a lot of different reactions on that day. There are going to be a lot of people who would wish to hide. In fact, the Bible tells us there are going to be people who would wish that a mountain would fall on top of them as the glory of God reveals the thoughts and intentions of every heart. There are going to be a lot of people who wish to hide on that day. But to those who have been buried with Him in baptism and risen to new life, we will be revealed with Him in all His glory. Some of you came here today and and you want some aspect of your life to change. And I'm good with that. I can relate to that. I have aspects of my life and my character and my habits that I want to change too. And if you're convicted about those things, I'd love to see those things in your life change. But just remember, if you do things in the wrong order, it creates problems. So if you're here today and you know you have sin in your life, I want to invite you to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of Holy Spirit. Because that's where God says, hey, I forgive you. Let's work on this together. If you need to respond to that call, we're going to have an invitation hymn here in just a moment. And you should come forward and we'll baptize you today. If you're not comfortable coming forward in a room full of people, I understand Grab me after church. We'll talk as long as you need to. Right now, I want to pray with you. God, we come before you and we are humbled. We are humbled by who you are, your holiness, and we are humbled by the fact that you decided on your own free will to serve us, to give your life us. We thank you. We praise you for that, God. And we ask that 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 would be the source of all of our hope more than anything else, God, that our hope would be you. That's my prayer for everyone in this room. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.